This is Bob Petrakis with the other side of the news brought to you by the Free Press.org. <laughs> WCRS Community Radio 98.3 and 102.1. Hi, this is Bob Trake is here with Kevin Camps, a radioactive waste watchdog. So, Kevin, you're with Beyond Nuclear. What brings you to Central Ohio? Well, I've given a couple presentations the past two days about the Davis-Bessey atomic reactor owned by First Energy. And it's kind of happening news right now because First Energy wants a $3.3 billion ratepayer bailout, not just for this uh, Davis-Bessey atomic reactor, but also for the Samus coal plant. So I gave a couple talks in town about how outrageous this is. So bailout, they want a welfare check, do they, uh, from their uh, ratepayers? Off the backs of small businesses and working families and everybody else who has electricity and has a bill to pay. Well, is that a good idea that uh, nuclear energy is reliable, is it not? It's it's hard to exaggerate how how incredible this request is because it was First Energy's lobbyists about 15 years ago that said, hey, look, yeah, it's a guaranteed profit we get. We're a monopoly, but, you know, we'd really like to make big money, and that's how good we are. We can out-compete all competitors in the free market, deregulate electricity, and it happened. And guess what? They can't compete. They're getting outcompeted, unfortunately, by uh, fracked natural gas, but also by wind power, certainly by uh, efficiency. And solar photovoltaics are not far behind at all. And so now they're begging for a bailout at you know at the expense of ratepayers. Well, a lot of the uh, business uh, journals have said that uh, the renewables are as cheap or cheaper than fossil fuels and nuclears. Is that going to continue? It's uh, renewables keep coming down in price. And uh, I remember there was a a research paper out of, I think it was Duke or North Carolina uh, University some years ago. They called it the Great Crossover. And it was the big moment where solar photovoltaics were the same cost as nuclear in terms of building new facilities. This was about five plus years ago. And what's, you know, really remarkable about that is that nuclear power has enjoyed the lion's share of public subsidies for the past half century. Uh, Wind power, solar power have been left with the crumbs. And yet, you know, that's changed some in recent years. Renewables have gotten more support, like the wind power production tax credit, for example, Mm -hmm. that's under attack every congressional session. (laughs) But uh, they're out competing nuclear power without the subsidies that have gone on for so many decades. So in a free market exercise, nuclear power is obsolete. It needs to be retired. Uh, It's not just the economics, though. Davis-Bessey is a huge safety risk for this entire area. How bad a safety risk? It's been called, among other things, the the hole-in-the-head nuke. Uh, Is it really dangerous? Yeah, they've had many uh, near misses with disaster over the decades. The hole in the head was a corrosion hole in the top of the reactor lid back in 2002 that nearly burst, and it would have been a loss of coolant accident, very likely a meltdown, and if the containment was breached, a catastrophic release of hazardous radioactivity. That was one of about a half dozen major uh, near misses at Davis-Bessey. And the talk these days, for the past three years now, three and a half years, has been the cracking of the shield building. This is the last line of defense. 
to keep radioactivity in if there's a meltdown or to keep the forces of nature or even terrorist attacks, I suppose, out from the vital uh, systems within. And it's a severely cracked uh, shield building. The concrete now cracks every time it freezes at that site by another half inch. How can that happen? I mean, they had to be able to uh, design it property. What? Oh, where did it go wrong? Well, uh, the first mistake they made, and they admitted this mistake. I'll give them credit. They admitted this mistake in, in 2012, only that was 40 years too late, 43 years too late, because when they built the shield building starting in 1969, they decided they didn't need to paint it. They didn't need to keep the elements out. And so their supposed explanation for why the cracking happened was the blizzard of 1978. Uh We called that the snow job right away. (laughs) There's dozens of reasons that the shield building is so badly cracked and cracking, one of which was during construction, they simply, well, they didn't paint the exterior, but they also have never painted the interior. And they left the dome off the top for several years. And so... Finally, they put the dome on, but a lot of water had already gotten in. And then they left a huge gaping hole in the wall because they had to put the reactor pressure vessel in, the steam generators, all these large nuclear components. This thing was exposed to a lot of elements for many years running before they even fired up. And uh, I suppose there's a function for the dome. Why would they leave it off? They just didn't get around to finishing that Uh job. I don't know all the reasons why, but... uh, Just like most nuclear projects, I think all nuclear projects, there are huge construction delays, Mm -hmm. which also add to the price tag quite significantly, and I'm sure that same thing happened to Davis-Bessey. So how dangerous, if we had to compare Davis-Bessey, is it Fukushima dangerous? Is it Three Mile Island dangerous? Is it, ah, there's some minor problems. It's uh, a twin design to Three Mile Island. So what happened at Three Mile Island uh, also happened at Davis-Bessey 18 months earlier. Fortunately, one of the control room operators put the puzzle together in time to avert disaster. But then that lesson learned was not communicated to the rest of industry, and it set the stage for Three Mile Island in 1979. Uh, It is Fukushima dangerous. It's a different reactor design. Fukushima... Units uh, 1, 2, and 3 that melted down are General Electric Boiling Water Mark 1 containment reactors. Uh, There's one of those up in uh, Monroe County, Michigan. It's called Fermi Unit 2, and it's the biggest one of them in the world. It's supersized. And uh, is that the one that was famous for uh, We Almost Lost Detroit? That referred to Fermi 1, which was (laughs) a different reactor design. So Fermi 2 is a better reactor? Uh they seem they to like it, they like improved. to take risks. I think there's psychologists have names for this kind of behavior pattern. So they Fermi one was an experimental plutonium breeder reactor, and mm. if you go far enough back in the top secret documents that eventually got released, actually, the original plan for Fermi one was to generate plutonium for the nuclear weapons complex, mm-hmm. and they were going to sell electricity as a side product. And then Eisenhower gave his Adams for Peace speech. Uh, creating some sort of supposed separation between atoms for peace and atoms for war. And they couldn't get away with the plutonium sales to the military, so they decided it was all about electricity. And a famous court case, United Auto Workers versus Atomic Energy Commission. The UAW had 500,000 members within 50 miles of Fermi 1. Went all the way to the Supreme Court, UAW arguing it's too dangerous a reactor design. One of their pieces of evidence was 
the Atomic Energy Commission's own advisory committee on reactor safeguards, one of the members was Ed Teller, the father of the hydrogen bomb, who thought this design was too dangerous to build. Hmm. So if it's too dangerous for Ed Teller, but UAW lost on a 7-2 vote in the U.S. Supreme Court. The Atomic Energy Commission was given carte blanche to approve this thing. And a couple years later, it partially melted down. And uh, John Fuller's book was We Almost Lost Detroit. And what happened to Fermi 1? Did they close it after that? They they tried to bring it back for six more years, and they finally admitted defeat in 1972. And it's still sitting there. And what's very ironic now is they want to build a Fermi 3, a proposed new reactor, right on the very spot where Fermi 1 is. I mean, they did. They took the melted-down fuel out to Idaho for temporary storage uh, half a century ago. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, They've got a lot of radioactive contamination at the Fermi 1 site. And uh, so we objected to the location of Fermi 3. We've objected to Fermi 3 completely, Mm -hmm. but we had to have a little fun. And we said, hey, look, uh, you guys established Fermi 1 as a a national historic preservation site. The, uh, The nuclear boosters were so proud of their meltdown history that they got, you know, one of these historic signs and... This official designation at the federal level, and we're like, you can't destroy this thing. And so the compromise that we didn't even agree to, we were just told, well, we hear your concerns, and we're going to create a uh, shelf in the library at the community college, and we will include your documents, including John Fuller's book. All right. So Fermi 3, as they say, third time is a radioactive disaster charm. Yeah. Uh, how does it make sense to build these things on the largest source of fresh water uh, in the world. Uh, I mean, even if these things had some history of safety uh, uh, and being, uh, you know, stable, which they don't, uh, mm-hmm. it still seems like you would not risk the world's largest fresh water source with essentially uh, poison that lasts for hundreds of thousands, if not millions of years. Yeah, it's uh, the Great Lakes are the drinking water supply for 40 million people, four zero million people in eight U.S. states, two Canadian provinces, and a very large number of Native American First Nations. So a nuclear disaster on the Great Lakes shoreline is going to be a bad day for the planet, especially in this neck of the woods. And we saw that with Toledo's water supply getting shut, mm-hmm. shut off for a few days. You know, it's total paralysis in society, right? Well, you know, it doesn't take an accident. Nuclear power plants have permits from the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, also from EPA and state agencies to release radioactivity on a regular basis. They mm-hmm. call them routine releases. They're not built to be airtight and to hold their breath. They have buildup of radioactive gases They have buildup of radioactive wastewater and radioactive liquids. And so they have a permit. And uh, as long as the radioactivity levels are below a certain concentration, that's considered acceptable or permissible. It doesn't mean it's safe. And so they release them into surface waters. They release them into the air. That's on a routine basis. All right. That's on uh, the Great Lakes. So, (laughs) And it it really gets taken to extremes. I mean... uh, You know, at Palisades in Michigan, where I'm from, it's on Lake Michigan. This atomic reactor does batch releases into Lake Michigan once or twice a season. They'll have all this liquid radioactive waste that they've been sitting on and allowing it to decay some. But like you said, some of this stuff lasts Mm -hmm. forever. And they just let it go. And we asked point blank 
point blank to the Nuclear Regulatory Commission chairman at a meeting in West Michigan, do you have any rules against doing a batch release when the lake is full of people on a Saturday in August? Because immediately next door to the nuclear power plant is a state park, and that lake will be filled with hundreds of people, many of them children. And they just hemmed and hawed. Apparently there's not a rule. And so it's up to the company to have the the basic morality to not do their batch release when the lake is full of people. Because all of their, oh, it's okay, it's safe, don't worry about it, it's all based on averaging, you know, and very optimistic assumptions that I'm sure do not include people being directly in the line of release of this stuff. And people are attracted to the warm water. It takes the same pathway as the warm thermal water discharges Mm. released. So where's that one located again? It's um, in southwest Michigan. The town is conveniently named Covert, and it's uh, just south of South Haven. Just south of South Haven. I know the area, having gone to Grand Valley in Allendale. Uh, Another nuke, uh, I recall, because I did some work up there uh, in terms of following the radioactive waste. Uh, It was a project of... uh, uh, Michigan Citizens Action, uh, the one that was in Traverse City. Ah, Big Rock Point. Yeah, one of, one of my first uh, political adventures in college. They had us follow these trucks to see if they complied with safety. And uh, they were supposed to have two people, one literally riding shotgun. And there was all these precautions. And we found one guy speeding heavily and who left his motor running when he pulled into... Uh, a McDonald's. It was just and went in? Yeah. So you could have just taken the truck. It could have been my first hijack. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I remember at the time we were working with a professor uh, at Grand Valley, and uh, and he was saying, you know, I mean, people don't realize that it. it was uh, back, now we call it a dirty bomb. But mm. he said, what if you had taken that? All you needed was a windy day, a stick of dynamite, and a high hill, and you could have taken out Detroit. Yeah, I mean, these... Uh, mobile Chernobyl shipments, we call them, are about to rev their engines on Capitol Hill. They're trying to get Yucca Mountain open. They see an opening because Senator Reid is retiring, and he's been the little Dutch boy with his finger in the dike stopping the Yucca Dump from happening for 25 years. So there's that. There's also these uh, parking lot dumps, we call them. Uh, The proponents call them centralized interim storage facilities. They're going to target Native American reservations, Mm -hmm. Department of Energy sites. They're going to try to get this stuff rolling on the roads and the rails and the waterways, and we got to stop them yet again. Well, the security problems are all solved now? Not at all. I mean, these shipping containers for the high-level radioactive waste are not designed to withstand terrorist attack with anti-tank missiles, for example. They're not designed for it. So there's huge holes in the security. It's a big issue. But safety risks. And uh, uh, none of them would come into the cities. They would always take uh, the outer belt now. And in my day, uh, they'd go right through the downtowns when we were following them. Well, when they're on the rails, they could well go quite downtown. Uh, Chicago comes to mind. There are train tracks within a quarter mile of the Chicago Art Institute that could carry this material in large numbers. So... Yeah, this stuff could find its way into metro areas where it's very vulnerable to attack. Also, severe accidents, uh, high-speed crashes, uh, high-temperature fires that burn for a long period, underwater submersions because there are barge shipments proposed on Mm -hmm. lakes and rivers and seacoasts. So, yeah, 
it's not good. And the reason that they want to do it, of course, is for all the wrong reasons. So these parking lot dumps are being motivated by the industry's desire to offload their liability. As soon as the waste leaves the gate, it's not their problem anymore. It's the Department of Energy's. It's taxpayers' problem. They're not liable. That's what's driving this thing. It's not because moving it to some central location makes sense because, you know, it's going to have to find a home in a deep geologic repository. Most folks agree someday, but we haven't found the right geology yet. So what if that right geology is right back in the same direction it came from in the first place? So all those transport risks get to be done again. That first trip made no sense. You're listening to WCRS 98.3, 102.1, Spob Trakis, and you're listening to The Other Side of the News. I'm here with Kevin Camps with Beyond Nuclear. He is a radioactive watchdog, and he's here in Ohio, and he's watching Davis Bessie, among other things. So, uh, the Davis Bessie... Uh, not only is it dangerous, as we've been talking about, uh, it's simply a bad deal? Well, um, they have no plans at First Energy to use the money they get, you know, a billion or a billion and a half, because the Samus coal plant's also looking for money. So I wouldn't be surprised if Davis Bessie got a couple billion, because it's, uh, you know, a large electricity generator. And they don't plan to use any of that money to fix the place. I mean, they've got the shield building that's on the brink of collapse. It's crumbling. It's cracking. They've got other problems. They have uh, severe corrosion of the inner steel containment vessel. That's the main radiological containment. It's rusting at the bottom and at the top. And, of course, they're infamous for blowing through lids because of leakage of acid. So you've had three lids in a decade at Davis Bessie. They're not planning any more major repairs in the next 22 years. They just want to run this thing into the ground and pocket that bailout as, as profit. Uh-huh, and they've always got interesting uh, names for these bailouts and uh, other things. I remember for a period of time when they kept referring to stranded costs, and I had to explain to my students that that was like uh, money they, they uh, uh, essentially were charging you from bad construction, design, and their own mistakes. Uh, but they never called it that. They always called it stranded costs. To pay off their mortgage. So uh, the money will come to them, and there's no guarantee if they get it that they'll do anything to improve the facility. Uh, but if it shut down, could Toledo survive? Well, uh We've seen five reactor shutdowns in the U.S. in the past year or two. We saw another one up in Quebec. Uh, Vermont Yankee in extreme southeastern Vermont just shut down at the end of 2014. And in each of these places, the nuclear power industry, the local utility, argues strenuously that it's going to be the end of the world for these places. Can't survive. There's no way they'll be able to get the energy. People will be freezing. Industry will come to a halt. Well, um... What happened in Vermont was this rogue company called Entergy, which owns Palisades and Big Rock Point. Big Rock shut down, but they own the high-level waste there. Their their business model is buy it dirt cheap and run it into the ground. And they lied under oath to the state of Vermont, and it was all that it took to you know get rid of any support they had in the state legislature or the governor's office. And uh, 
you know, it's being handled very carefully in Vermont. So the current governor who campaigned on shutting down this nuke, actually, that's how he got the governorship, Hmm. is training the workers who have been let go from Vermont Yankee for transition to other jobs. And uh, a lot of the workers kept their jobs because they have a big mess up there. Lots of radioactive contamination that needs cleaning up. High-level radioactive waste in uh, mountainous quantities that need to be safeguarded for a long time, forever. So a lot of people still have their jobs. And now the dismantlement work of taking the facility apart. So a lot of workers kept their jobs. But what about the huge gap in the energy market? Uh, where do they get the energy from? Well, um, once Entergy Nuclear had lied to the state of Vermont, none of the utilities or distribution companies in Vermont would do business with this company. Mm. So not a single watt of electricity from Vermont Yankee Atomic Reactor was being used in Vermont. The light stayed on. There's a glut of electricity on our system, and these nukes can go away and not be missed. I mean, Davis-Bessie was shut down from 2002 to 2004, and there were no major... Uh, power problems. There was a power problem. Uh, even though Davis-Bessie was already shut down, it didn't have to do with the shutdown. It had to do with the fact that First Energy had forgotten or neglected to trim the trees in northwest Ohio. A branch touched a major power line, and it led to the power outage to 50 million people in the northeast of North America. It didn't have to do with the nuke being shut down. It had to do with the neglect by this company that hemorrhaged $600 million because of the hole-in-the-head fiasco. They couldn't afford to trim the trees. So you're saying if Davis-Bessie shuts down again, which it's already done, uh, we won't really miss it in terms of energy providing? Well, I mean, you know, we're looking at a lot of coal plants on the brink of closure, and it's where we have to start to apply the good ideas. Solar photovoltaics that can be deployed very quickly, uh, wind power that can also be deployed very quickly, energy efficiency that can be installed, like, right now, you know. We need to do those things to make sure that there's enough electricity in the network to keep everybody going, but yeah, we can we can do this. And Germany's doing it. Uh, Fukushima was the final straw. Even the Conservative Party in Germany got it at that point. I mean, the Greens got it back in the 70s. The Social Democrats finally got it in the year 2000. And now the Conservatives, too, are phasing out nuclear power by 2022, replacing it with renewables and efficiency. And Germany's the fourth largest economy in the world. So if they can do it, and they're north of us here, it can be done here. You heard it here on the other side of the news. We can replace uh, nuke, but not only nuke, you're arguing uh, fossil fuels as well? Germany is going to phase out fossil fuels by mid-century, almost to the 100% level. They're going to phase out emissions to the 85% level, so it's close to a complete phase-out of fossil fuels as well. What happened uh, to the talk about these newly designed nukes that were going to be incredibly more efficient and safer it is a lot of talk uh they did break ground on four reactors in this country in the last 10 years uh, two in georgia two in south carolina it's a new reactor design with major flaws in the containment so new and improved <laughs> it's new and messed up is what it is they're suffering the schedule delays and the cost overruns as well mm -hmm. They even managed to drop one of the reactor pressure vessels during transport off the train car. It, it actually crushed the train car. 
and uh, then sat out in the elements for a couple weeks under a tarp. So they're really screwing up. It's happening all over the world. Uh, the French just announced last week uh, serious quality problems with the new reactor pressure vessels they're building over there. So they've kind of given up on the giant new reactors, although Fermi 3 is about to get a license, so we have more fight ahead. Now their their new um, grand scheme is called small modular reactors, and First Energy is right there on these things. They've got a new magic solution. Just give us all your money. They'll make it happen. So who's behind this industry and uh, its viability? I mean, it's really based on bailouts, is it not? And uh, no private insurance company will insure these things, will they? Right. The Price-Anderson Act has capped the liability of the nuclear power industry since 1957. And the current version of the law that's on the books till 2025 is $12.5 billion in industry liability. And the way it works is if Davis Bessie were to have a catastrophic meltdown, First Energy would have to pay $125 million at Davis Bessie, $125 million from each of the two reactors at Beaver Valley. Every reactor in the country would have to pool its money to the tune of $125 million. It would add up to $1.25, I'm sorry, to $12.5 billion, and that'd be it. That would be their responsibility. And after that, it would take uh, the U.S. government to act. And there's no guarantee that the U.S. government would act to compensate people. And the damages, the biggest figure I've seen so far for the price tag on the Fukushima nuclear catastrophe is $650 billion. So if you got that's the f- a staggering mm-hmm. figure, six hundred and fifty billion dollars. How does it get that high? Well, you're talking about a large chunk of Northeast Japan that's contaminated, and the rest of the country as well. Uh, the dead zone is way too small. That's the official contaminated place where people can't go back home. One hundred and thirty thousand mm-hmm. people should be much bigger than that. Uh, the disruption to society. I mean, you also have to look at the fact that the Japanese people won't let the 48 remaining reactors in that country restart. So the lost revenues, the lost electricity, they've had to import fossil fuels to get by in the meantime because they also did not do renewables over the course of decades. Now they're trying. They, they're they desperate now. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, there's lots of categories of cost to a nuclear catastrophe. Well, I recall when we had Fernault here and they were cleaning it up and that wasn't a reactor, uh, reactor, but where they were enriching uranium for the military. And uh, I recall they had to take away like 20 feet of topsoil. I'm not sure where they take it, but uh, yeah. just the cost of restoring the land. They're doing like. that on a grand scale in Fukushima and adjacent prefectures, just scraping away the topsoil, putting it in these giant bags that then sit there because they don't know where to take them. Where they're taking them is to Fukushima Daiichi now. They're building mountains of these bags that are full of radioactive dirt and branches and leaves and you name it, and piling it up there on the two towns that have already suffered the worst from this catastrophe, these ghost towns. And clearly long-term medical problems. You had that little Chernobyl uh, necklace uh, and uh, we've known people uh, that live here in Columbus from the Ukraine, and almost all of them have had their thyroids removed. Uh, and they didn't live in Chernobyl. They lived in Kiev and, and other places. Is that common as well? Yeah, and uh, there's indications at Fukushima that there are problems with children's thyroids. And one of the more 
dark aspects of all this stuff is that the nuclear establishment, both the industry and the government supporters, will deny to the grave that that this is the case, you know. So there are concerns with uh, children's thyroids in Fukushima. I've heard, I've been in debates with industry spokespeople who deny that the uh, Chernobyl thyroid pathology uh, stemmed from the radioactivity. They They do it to this day, even though... The United Nations. Statistically, it's at such a high level compared to other parts uh, of of the world. And And all you got to do is compare Poland to Ukraine and Belarus and Western Russia. They distributed potassium iodide. As soon as they learned three days in, when the cover-up was blown open, Mm -hmm. they distributed potassium iodide to protect people's thyroid glands. In Poland, did not have the epidemic. Okay, we've got uh, just a couple minutes left here. What do you want to tell the listeners, and how can they uh, contact you or look at your work? Yeah, um, our website is just beyondnuclear.org. And, uh, you know, I just encourage people to get active on this bailout attempt by First Energy, because if we block it, that could be all she wrote for Davis Bessie. And that would be a great day for Ohio, because it's way too risky. And you've actually got some business allies here in the last minute on your side, do you not? Uh, Walmart, apparently, doesn't want to pay. <laughs> Walmart uh, is on the right side. That's elevated a good side. Uh, prices for electricity. So, yeah. So it's just bad for business in Ohio. When you jack the price of electricity, you are driving business out of your state. Okay, Kevin Camps from Beyond Nuclear, the watchdog roving the Midwest and the United States to warn us about the dangers of radioactive contamination. Thank you for being on the other side of the news, Kevin. Thanks for having me.